Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today we have a real treat for you. We have... Professor Mitchell Ornstein, who is the professor of Central and East European politics in the Slavic department at the University of Pennsylvania and is an associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. This is part of Reconsider's four-part Reconsidering Russia, where we're trying to dig into the historical and geopolitical context of Russia to help you better understand some of their moves uh, today and what's going on. Professor Ornstein's research focuses on political economy and the international affairs of Central and Eastern Europe, and he also teaches a course on Russian and Eastern Europe uh, international affairs, which digs into geopolitical competition in the EU and Russia. So a lot of really interesting, relevant stuff. Professor Ornstein, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, I'm particularly excited to have Professor Ornstein. This is a topic I'm really curious about. And of course, Xander and I did a bunch of research in order to curate some of the questions, uh, but we don't quite know what we're getting ourselves into. So we're also going to be learning a lot today. And uh, so you guys get to join us in this experience. Um, so really grateful for Professor Ornstein giving us all this time. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, no problem at all. Happy to do it. So I want to kick off the conversation with a sentence that you wrote in a, in a book review on Central and Eastern European politics, which I think will frame this discussion nicely. Uh, you wrote that geopolitics, more than reform or democracy, seems to separate the winners from the losers. Now, what did you mean by that? And how would you even define geopolitics for the sake of this conversation? Well, I think that um, that you know it became apparent to people after about 2008 that there was a new dividing line in Europe. That uh, that Europe that we had previously, I think, in the United States, assumed and talked about a Europe whole and free. That Europe was going to be sort of a united continent at last. That there was no more Iron Curtain. Um, that was gone for good. And and that there was just a problem of sort of how to integrate Russia into that uh, mix. Uh, a lot of the Central and East European countries were gradually being integrated into the European Union, and it was a happy, harmonious future. But I think after the Russo-Georgian War, it became very clear that there was a new dividing line, a new geopolitics, a new set of um, agendas to sort of organize the European space. 
And whereas from the Western perspective, it was still this Europe whole and free, from Russia's perspective, it shifted to uh, a divided Europe. And uh, Russia has pursued a divided Europe strategy. It wants to uh, create a, a clear uh, barrier, a clear um, limit to the expansion of the European Union. It wants to uh, get rid of NATO or sort of move, push NATO back a bit in its ambitions. Uh, keep NATO and the EU kind of firmly on one side of uh, of a sort of new divide, and to develop its own Eurasian Union and uh, Eurasian alliances on on the other hand. So, I think um, that I think that's what I was really talking about is that uh, that you know some countries um, have ended up in in Europe on one side of the divide and some on the other, and uh, and I think that's really introduced a new problematic for for European politics. I think given that context, the big question that we're promising our listeners is understanding what Russia wants, both now and going forward. And what we want to start with is there's this big question, which is, what does Russia want in the world right now? And what's standing in its way from getting that? Well, I think I think the big picture is that Russia sees itself as a sort of great power in the world. And it's basically disadvantaged in Europe at present, right? Because in within the European Union, Russia is sort of a maybe almost possibly at some point in the future member of the European Union, a sort of diminished European state. It's a European state that isn't wealthy enough, that isn't democratic enough to really be in the mainstream of the European Union and therefore is kind of peripheral to European um, European politics. And Russia really doesn't see itself that way. The way it sees itself is rather as a great power on the global stage. And it wishes to be recognized along with China and the United States and maybe a couple other powers as the defining powers in the world. And therefore, the European Union is is a kind of a straitjacket and competitor for, for it. I think that what Russia really wants at, at, at its basic level is it wants to be a great power that means it wants to have a sphere of influence. That means it wants to have equality and parity sort of with the U.S. and China, although it's much smaller in terms of its economy. Um, and it wants the world to be organized instead of along the lines of a kind of liberal Western international system. It wants to be um, it wants to be uh, a world in which um world in which great powers can get together and decide the fate of nations and and Russia would be one of those uh, one of those countries so if we think about Russia's national interests what geopolitical interests have been constants in Russia's history so what what has remained unchanged for the last several hundred years and what has changed you know i think i think a lot has changed it, it sort of seems to me that russia has changed drastically every time it's had a new president or czar or communist party leader, right? So if you think about it, Mikhail Gorbachev drastically changed the foreign policy of the Soviet Union. Prior to that, it had maintained an empire in Europe and sought to periodically uh, um, sort of discipline its empire by invading neighboring states. It invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968. Hungary in 1956, and um, you know this type of imperial foreign policy was absolutely disbanded by Mikhail Gorbachev, who said, you know, Eastern Europe can go its own way. And uh, Boris Yeltsin 
basically continued with that policy. So you've had very, very pro-Western presidents, um, top leaders in Russia who have been um, seen Russia, you know, as integrating with the West and, and sort of um, being modernized potentially and, um, you know, with its relationship with the West. And then you've had so-called Eurasian leaders like uh, Putin or more Eastern uh, looking and see Russia as fundamentally incompatible with Europe, uh, not really European. And, um, and these people are in, you know, in the, in the control right now, and they tend to see the West more as a competitor uh, and not to be trusted. They emphasize that Russia has often been invaded from the West in the Napoleonic era by the German armies. And so, um, so I don't, I, I, I'm not one who generally ascribes to the idea that, that countries have stable foreign policy preferences, but in particular in Russia's case, you see radical changes every time there's a new president. That's why I believe that should Putin or eventually Putin will, will leave power. We don't know exactly when, maybe 2024 or something. But um, but it, when if and when he does leave power, I suspect that there will be quite a different uh, foreign policy approach in Moscow. What has caused Russia's movement of its focus on its sense of community from the West to the East? Because you mentioned that, you know, distrust with the West has grown. And I suspect this happened over the 20th century. What's causing that distrust besides perhaps the invasions? And what does Russia see in the East for itself? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that you've hit on the $64 million question, right? I mean, that's, that to me is the big question. Why did they suddenly shift? I mean, it it's not absolutely clear. I, I, it seems that when Putin came to power, there were definitely signs that he was uh, a little more autocratic and centralizing. But he seemed to reach out to the West. He seemed to welcome European Union. Um, I don't think any Russian leaders love NATO uh, particularly. But um, but he was definitely pretty uh, congenial, I think, towards the West. He called and uh, offered his condolences on 9-11 in 2001. Um, and at, at about 2007 or 2006, it appears that something changed. And... Uh, I really don't know what it is, to tell you the truth. I mean, at, at the time, what I see is that different foreign policy uh, think tanks in Russia were beginning to consider whether a Eurasian strategy might not be a better approach. And I suspect that those were probably uh, initiated by the Kremlin. In other words, the Kremlin would have said, look, we're considering a change of our foreign policy approach. Can you please do a report on this and, and consider, you know, what the implications of this would be. Um, and we saw the change coming. So I, I think, I mean, it could have been, for instance, that Putin had all along seen the West as a, as a potential, as an enemy, but he wasn't strong enough and consolidated enough domestically to do anything about it. And it's very possible that, um, that he just changed his mind at a certain point and realized he, he, he seems to have in a lot of ways gone back to a Soviet mentality about everything. So, uh, for instance, he created a, a new youth movement that's modeled on the Soviet young pioneers. He, a lot of his foreign policy harkens back to Soviet type, uh, approaches to things. Um, so it's possible he just fell back into the patterns that he knew from his youth and found them to be more comfortable 
the whole idea that the America could be this huge enemy and that that would be a big propaganda victory that would consolidate support at home. I mean, it sort of seems like he just decided at some point to rely on the Soviet Union playbook, just interpreted in a more nationalistic light. In terms of what he sees in the East, I think uh, that's kind of an interesting, uh, another interesting thing. I think it's interesting part of the Russian imagination. I was struck in some visits and interviews I've done in, in Moscow that um, you, you hear a lot of people, uh, or you hear at, at a certain point you start hearing a lot of people saying, this is the Russia's Pacific century, right? That this is um, that we're going to move the capital to Vladivostok, and and Russia is going to be a Pacific-leaning power. In in actual reality, um, Russia has actually become much more European ever since 1991, because with the um, uh, lack of economic growth, more people have moved into the European part of Russia. It hasn't become more Asian, at least in its population. Of course, its borders haven't changed. But I think a lot of Russian foreign policy leaders tend to think about the East and tend to imagine a, a Russia that has a much bigger presence in the East. And I guess that the, the idea there would be same reason behind Obama's pivot to Asia, that Asia is where the growth is, uh, fast growing economies, Russia by sort of tapping into that in various ways, for instance, providing natural resources, um, uh, it, or other expertise that it has, uh, can somehow tap into that uh, newfound wealth and become a more successful country by itself. Um, there's also a view that by partnering with China that one can uh, become a more, that's a way to become a more relevant uh, player in world affairs. So I, I think it is like, it's sort of largely imaginary, um, but um, but there's no doubt that there is a kind of uh, both a romantic appeal to it and uh, a, a very potential um, economic and uh, appeal. However, it, it also really doesn't correspond with um, some important facts about Russia that it, that it is really a European state, at least as far as its population. And to what extent is this pivot, do you think, and you've touched on this a bit, driven by Putin's own primary decision making and it to what extent do you think it's sort of an inevitable uh, shift that's just going to occur due to geopolitical changes that are happening between Europe and Asia? You mentioned, of course, the difference in growth of the economies. Um, do you think that if it, there was a different leader, they'd be doing the same thing? Um, or do you think that this is largely driven by Putin's personality? I, I, I would fall squarely in the latter camp. I mean, I, I really think that if you look over time, Every single time there's been a new leader in Russia, there's been a, a radical, drastic change in its policies in all sorts of ways. Think of the, the transition from Stalin to Khrushchev, for instance. That was one of the biggest, sharpest breaks ever in, uh, in Russian policy. Or the shift from uh, uh, Andropov to uh, Gorbachev or the shift from Gorbachev to Yeltsin or the shift from Yeltsin to Putin. I mean, every single time there's been a massive change, of course, with the exception of Medvedev, who was basically in the pocket of Putin all along. And he wasn't, in my view, sort of a real president of Russia. Um, so um, so I do think that, um, I, I, I don't think, I think that Russia is a divided, historically, if you look over very long periods of time, Russia has been divided between East and West. So it, um, it has tended to um, go through periods in which it was more Western-leaning and periods in which it's more Eastern-leaning. 
The challenge of these Western-leaning periods is that Russia is very underdeveloped compared to the West. It has a very much lower labor productivity. It has very much, even though it has high levels of education, um, its social organization is weak. Uh, its government is weak. It's racked by corruption. Um, it doesn't appear to be able to create a kind of uh, law-based state. Um, and uh, for these reasons, its uh, experiences with the West tend to be kind of disappointing. Um, it, it never seems to really be able to fit in with the West. At the same time, its Eastern-leaning periods or inward-leaning periods also create a lot of disappointment because they tend to be periods in which Russia falls further and further behind um, the rest of the world. Now, whether that's happening economically, I suppose not really right now. So that's been, I guess, Putin's success is that he's had relatively good economic um, results from an Eastern strategy. However, right now with the increasing tensions um, with the West, he's under sanctions, oil prices have gone down, and the Russian economy isn't looking like a rapidly developing uh, economy like the other BRICs. So um, so I, I think the, the fact is Russia is different. It's a very large country. Uh, it is partly in Europe and partly in Asia. Uh, Russians have been, um, you know, uh, under Asian rule, uh, you know, since the Mongol invasion for several hundred years. It's a big, it's a multi-ethnic country that includes a lot of Muslims. Um, it's, it's pretty different um, from Europe, and there's a lot of reasons why, uh, why it can't quite fit in to a Western paradigm that easily. And of course, um, the 1990s were a really, really tough time for Russia, the, uh, a failure of a kind of Western-oriented modernization. That's interesting. Now, I, you mentioned the size of Russia, and I think that's a really critical, just geographical point that people need to understand if they're going to try to understand what's going on. And we were kind of hoping in this in this discussion to, you know, kind of do a little bit of an overview and then hop into some of the the regional interests that that Russia has because of its size. Before we do that, uh, you mentioned a moment ago that you don't really think that countries or subscribe to the the theory that countries have constant interests over long periods of time. But thinking about Russia's interests today, how how does a Russian's perception of those interests vary from an American interpretation? If we're, if we're both looking at the same event, how will they see it differently? Hmm. Well, I think, I think for Americans, it's really transparently obvious that Russia needs to modernize, right? It doesn't... Um, if you think about it, if I were to ask you to do a thought experiment, you know, what products in your house or in your life anywhere come from Russia, right? What is what does Russia produce that, that is actually usable to us or to you? And the answer would be basically practically nothing except for um, uh, Luke oil, right? You, you know, sometimes I fill my car up at Luke oil, right? But aside from that, I don't think really there's any product that um, that is coming out of Russia that people buy with the exception of arms. I mean, I, I don't personally buy Kalashnikovs, but I suppose if I were on the market for a semi-automatic weapon, that might be one I would consider. You know, so Russia has this problem that that 50% of its exports or more is, um, is, uh, is you know, hydrocarbons. And it's a, a very commodity-based, you know, poor economy. And despite having an intel in highly educated workforce, um, it doesn't have the social organization together to, um, to do a lot of high-tech industry. 
and is therefore very, very reliant on the West. So when Westerners look at Russia, they say, well, this is a country like Brazil, maybe, or like South Africa that, that kind of needs to modernize badly. For Russians, um, I think they halfway buy that, you know, but at the same time, that makes them feel bad a little bit. And and I think that the way they try to look at things is, is um, you know, like Americans, they, in a way, they, they're very nationalistic and they tend to have a perspective that they want, they want to see their country uh, thrive and they kind of have an imperialistic view of what that means. So you see enormous pride that Russia was able to uh, take back, you know, Crimea or take Crimea from the Ukrainians. Um, so I think, I think in public opinion polls, you see that Russians right now, for instance, are bummed out about the economy. They're not, not that, they're a little bit optimistic about the future, but they're not, convinced the economy is really doing very well, but they're extremely happy with President Putin primarily because he's pursued an imperialistic foreign policy that they support. So um, so I think it's the kind of situation where, where Russians really take great pride in their country being a great power. And that's why that's a really um, saleable uh, identity and a saleable product in Russia. And Putin's able to say, well, Look, you have to suffer for the greatness of the country. Um, I think in the United States, that's a pretty much a no-go in politics. But in Russia, people are quite happy with that. Now, if we hop down to the regional level, you've written about East European post-Soviet democratization and how this influences uh, or how this impacts Russia's influence in the near abroad. Now, before before I ask you about this process, just to clarify for our readers the terminology, what exactly or is generally referred to by the near abroad? Well, um, near abroad is a term that uh, that the Russians at one point used to talk about um, the former Soviet republics that were now independent and abroad, but they sort of never really quite saw them as totally abroad. They, they saw them as uh, brethren or the near abroad. Got it. Now... Based on your research, should we anticipate more or less democratization in Russia's near abroad? And how, how is this going to impact Eastern Europe's uh, relationships, both with Russia and the West? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the uh, basically, um, those countries that really left the Soviet orbit in a hurry, and the Rus- I guess the Russian orbit in a hurry, um, and really pushed to become members of the European Union that include some former Soviet states like uh, the Baltic Republics, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, and also um, war, former war, Warsaw Pact allies, including Poland, Czechoslovakia, now two countries, um, Hungary, and um, also Yugoslavia and some others. Uh, those countries that rushed to the West immediately after 1989 became quite democratic, although we've seen some backsliding in Hungary, uh, encouraged, by the way, by um, by Russia. But I think, by and large, these countries have become pretty democratic states now. They, they rank similarly with other democratic states. And on the other hand, there were a number of former Soviet republics that, um, that pursued authoritarian strategies from the get-go that included Central Asian states like Turkmenistan or Kazakhstan, as well as Belarus, that um, may have had a short window of opportunity for democracy, but but never 
uh, but then very quickly consolidated into authoritarian regimes, often led by the same leaders who led them in the communist times. And then there were a group of countries sort of in between that included Ukraine, Moldova, um, Georgia, to some extent Armenia, Azerbaijan maybe, well, I guess Azerbaijan, not so much. They'd be in the more authoritarian camp, who seemed to be a little bit split. In, in other words, they, they had significant support for democracy, but also significant sort of obstacles to becoming democratic and significant ties still to uh, the Russian economy and to Russian culture, and therefore um, didn't proceed as quickly towards Europeanization or democratization. And I think that's where you see the um, the sharpest change. So at this point in, in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, democratization is stalled, if not kind of moving into a backsliding mode in a number of countries. And it's not all Russian influence. You can't really blame Russia for that trend entirely, because it also has to do with, uh, with domestic trends that have been sort of a disillusion, a general disillusionment with democracy, uh, disillusionment with um, the economic reforms that occurred in the 1990s that were moving countries in more westward direction. So, um, so there's a general disillusionment with democracy, but Russia feeds into that very, very clearly by specifically supporting anti-democratic and anti-European Union um, politicians uh, within its former allied states and also elsewhere in the European Union. You mentioned a lot of countries running away from Russia after the Soviet Union fell. Um, I think a lot of listeners, including myself, will assume that to a large extent it was due to sort of being under the heel of Russia's boot and not enjoying it so much, right. um, in particular the Baltics. Uh, so I guess the first question is, is that largely true for all these guys? You know, Poland, um, Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, etc. Um, and if not, what's driving them less? And then for countries like Belarus and Moldova, and to some extent, Ukraine, what's driving them to stick with Russia, even though the Cold War ended so poorly for them? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it based it has to do with uh, sort of cultural zones, to some extent in Europe that the period after the Second World War was the greatest extent pretty much ever of the Russian Empire. And and they took in a number of uh, states that were uh, not easily assimilable into um, into the Russian culture. And, you know, in particular, the countries that saw themselves more as, as Catholic countries being uh, traditionally part of the, of West, of the West uh, part of the Habsburg Empire, or part of... Um, uh, other the Holy Roman Empire, other uh, empires that that were really unified with with the West, tended to see Russian Empire as a kind of imposition. I think it was a little different for Bulgaria and Romania, who had been liberated by the Tsars uh, and had been under the Ottoman Empire. So, to a large extent, it, it it probably was cultural zones that that people felt more comfortable with. But I think it was also um, economic. I mean, these these cultural zones and, and older geopolitical uh, uh, boundaries had really corresponded a lot with economics um, as well. But you see, for instance, in Ukraine, 
um, you, some of these countries are really on the borders of a cultural zone in Europe, and Ukraine even means, the, the, the name of the country even means borderlands or on the border. And um, Ukraine had been, if you look at the former Habsburg parts of Ukraine, um, they are very pro-Western leaning. Um, parts of Ukraine that had been uh, part of the Ottoman Empire, Russian Empire for a longer period of time tend to be more Russian leaning. And so Ukraine is famously sort of regionally divided. Um, part of the country is, is just as Western oriented probably as Poland. Um, and that's why you, you know, that's why you see these huge numbers of protesters out in the street, uh, you know, waving EU flags and ready to fight for Ukraine to join the European Union. At the same time, there's a lot of Ukrainians who don't feel that impulse and, and, uh, feel more of an allegiance, uh, towards Russia. So, um, so I think that it's a, a combination of factors that are partly sort of deeper, uh, religious or historical, uh, or linguistic, uh, sort of, you know, ties. But, um, but I think, um, part of it is their contemporary economics and, um, and, uh, where these countries are placed kind of in the global economy and how, you know, for instance, Moldova, which is a very poor country, uh, just never really had much traction with the West. It couldn't find a way to take advantage of Western economies of sort of being uh, allied with Western economies, you know, because it's, its own economy was too poor, um, to manage that. Um, and, and therefore sort of has drifted back to some extent to, um, to, uh, allegiance with, uh, with Russia and the Eurasian union. So thinking about Ukraine, which obviously for the last over two years now has been foremost on a lot of people's minds given where the conflict stands today what what should we expect to see there i mean will will russia be content letting this current state of somewhat frozen conflict persist does it have the resources to escalate and how important is ukraine in the russian cultural consciousness given how many times russia has been invaded through this um through this territory I think Ukraine is very, very important to Russia. Um, they have said that all along, that um, they view, for better or for worse, I mean, Ukraine's an independent country, but basically a lot of Russians in the foreign policy establishment anyway, and certainly Putin, have never really believed that Ukraine is an independent country and don't want it to be an independent country. And and they're quite uh, addicted to that to that mindset. They uh, are willing to go to war to, to do it. They're willing to impose a lot of costs on a lot of people, um, to, uh, make that, you know, territory theirs. Um, so, uh, so I think, I think Ukraine is, uh, yeah, really fundamentally strategically important to the way Putin thinks about, um, the world and, you know, the way somebody else might think about the world may be pretty different, right? So, uh, I, I think Russia will always feel akin to the Ukraine, but I think that um, another leader might wish to see a more successful, uh, uh, economically successful, maybe democratic Ukraine as, as, a, as a better partner than a than a enemy. Um, but that's unfortunately not how President Putin sees it. Uh, the other question I have on Ukraine is why is Ukraine so important to Russia. So to some extent, you know, you look at Estonia, they're much closer to, um, you know, large Russian population centers, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Latvia, Lithuania, very close to Moscow. 
Estonia is very close to Leningrad. Um, Ukraine seems to some extent a little bit out of the way. So why is it a higher priority than the Baltics? That's a really good question. I think, first of all, Ukraine is a huge country, right? It's a bigger size than France. Um, it was a breadbasket of Europe at one time. Um, it is uh, a population also akin to some of the larger European states, although it's declined a lot since the post-Soviet period, but it still has, uh, I believe, 40, 50 million people. So, um, so it's a very big country, much more strategically, much more strategic for that reason. I think that for the case of the Baltic states, it's because they, they so clearly are, are, have left Russia's orbit, right? And are part of the EU. And I think, I think that, um, but, but it, it may not be that they're sort of less strategic from, you know, Moscow's standpoint, but I think that there's an awareness that it would be much, much more costly to kind of bring them back into a Eurasian Union, and it would it would be a very very painful process. So, instead, I believe what Russia is trying to do is, um, you know, have its influence felt in those countries and and have various uh, ways into um, the politics of those countries and try to control uh, as possible in Ukraine. So, I, I think Ukraine um, is just bigger, more strategic. Also, was more open to influence. It was kind of a a soft underbelly. It hadn't. It hadn't done the work that uh, that the Baltic countries had to really integrate with the West um, prior to this uh, change of heart that Russia had in about 2007, 2008, and therefore was just um, very vulnerable because it had kind of become a corrupt state uh, in between a number of competing oligarchs, and, and it sort of seemed like it was in property of its oligarchs, and uh, that just made it kind of vulnerable to, to Russian influence. So... We've swept west a little bit, talking about Ukraine and the Baltics. Uh, Finland, obviously another country that mattered quite a bit in World War II. The Nazis, you know, moved up to protect their flank when they decided to, to invade in 1941. And Russia failed miserably when they, when they tried to, to move in earlier. How does Russia think about Finland today? It's one of its, 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 its most northwest border, right? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that um, I think that Russia uh, regards Finland as a state that it has a kind of understanding with, uh, for the most part. That uh, Finns uh, managed to defend themselves pretty well from Russian invasion. They uh, earned a certain respect uh, from Moscow. On the other hand, Russia did take a certain amount of Finnish territory at that time, and so that remains a kind of victory away for Russia. So I think there's a kind of um, mutual sense on both sides that they wouldn't really want to be engaged in any sort of um, conflict. At the same time, Finland's a really popular destination for Russians. It's uh, a place that Russians like to go. It's very close by. Um, so I think, um, on, you know, on the other hand, I think Finland is, as Russia has become more belligerent, really. And I, I'm a person who really puts a lot of blame on Russia and Russia's leaders, in particular President Putin, for uh, taking a much more belligerent stance in Europe. And um, as Russia has become more belligerent, uh, Finland has really been pushed to think about whether it should remain independent or join NATO. And there's, it hasn't joined NATO yet, but I think a number of steps have been taken that make um, interoperability of Finnish forces with those of NATO much more possible, um, you know, make it uh, likely that Finland would 
support any sort of operation NATO might undertake to sort of support the Baltic states. Um, so as you've seen, you know, in a way with Finland, a sort of more muted way, the same sort of distancing and uh, and increasing sort of belligerence that you've seen um, in other states, for instance, Sweden, uh, you may have seen today, just decided to reinstate the draft, um, had been gone for quite some time, and they reinstated it so that they could uh, uh, have more troops to defend themselves against a possible Russian invasion. And I'm quite sure that um, that Finland is kind of uh, feeling that same sort of anxiety. So staying in the West, I'm curious if, you know, Germany has really, it, Germany is the center of Europe and so many of Europe's major wars have been fought over essentially what's happening in Germany or the German states. What's the nature of Russia's relationship with Germany now? Is anything shifting? And how does Germany look at Russia, you know, given their close relationship uh, with the West for the last several decades? Yeah, well, you know, Germany is, has often played a kind of bridging role with Russia. And in particular, since 1991, the end of the Soviet Union, Germany has played has tried to have very, very close relationship with Russia and was very deeply embedded in a kind of modernization project. Remember, I talked about modernization, Western-oriented modernization. Well, Germany thought that it would facilitate that for Russia. Um, it would be at the core of that. It would, of course, profit with that mutually with, with the Russians. And it would thereby sort of guide Russia towards the West. And what happened, that didn't really happen. Um, that, that plan basically failed. Germans were very, very persistent about it. They were um, uh, have built a lot of business ties. There's a lot of flights between Germany and Russia. Um, but at the end of the day, um, this trust, I think, between the two countries was really broken uh, during the Ukraine crisis. Basically, I believe primarily when um, Russian-backed separatists shot down um, the Malaysian Airlines uh, Flight 17 over eastern Ukraine. And uh, Chancellor German Chancellor Merkel, who had been speaking more than any other leader, speaking to President Putin, um, spoke to him about this incident and was lied to by the Russians, in my, in my view. Um, Putin probably uh, denied... Uh, he denied that um, it was shot down, that it was a Russian missile that had shot down the plane, uh, denied any knowledge of it, uh, didn't assist in any way in recovery efforts, which would have been extremely comforting uh, for the Dutch. Uh, so, and, and, and Merkel came out with a statement, you might remember, that said, you know, Putin's living in another world, and uh, he's not even, you know, kind of communicating on the same wavelength, I think, as, as, as Western leaders at that point. And that was really the uh, beginning or, you know, that was the, the culmination in a way or sort of of a, of a split that occurred between Germany and Russia, who had really um, tried to have extremely good relations up to that point, to the extent that a lot of the Russian soldiers, um, special forces were actually trained by Germany, uh, trained by German companies who were operating there, and they had to leave. And since that point, you know, Russia has really treated Germany, as, like other European states, as an enemy and has used cyber warfare techniques to break into the Bundestag uh, to try and um, influence the uh, the German elections that are happening uh, later this year. 
And Germany, German society is, is broadly turned away from seeing Russia as a partner and towards seeing it as a threat and enemy. Uh, there's talk about uh, uh, rebuilding the German military, which is, again is makes a lot of other Europeans kind of nervous. But in this context, I think Germans are seriously considering it because they're worried about um, conflict, you know, in the East. So um, I, I guess that relationship is one that has had been very close up until 2014 and is really broken um, in a fundamental way. And I think it's really that relationship more than any other, which explains why Europe joined the United States in slapping sanctions on on Russia after, um, you know, the Crimea invasion. We're going to turn back east a little bit for a minute to the, the Caucasus. And this this region provides, you know, a strategic buffer of a sort to Russia from Turkey. But it's, you know, a part of the world that probably isn't first and foremost on many Americans' minds. Could you talk a little bit about why this region is strategically important to Russia, how and how some of the recent conflicts, you know, both the Georgian War in 2008 and what's going on in Nagorno-Karabakh can impact Russia's calculations? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. First of all, I have to say that the Caucasus region is extremely unusual in the world. It's a very, very specific, unusual region. Um, you really... Um, you really have to look at it in a totally different light than any other area. So the Caucasus is marked by, it's very mountainous. It has this, um, it's a, it's a isthmus, uh, in between Russia and, um, sort of South Asia, um, that, um, that is, um, completely, um, uh, covered with a mountain range that runs from the East to the West. Okay, the eastern sort of Georgia to the west and Augustan. And, um, I mean, sorry, the, the opposite way around, but it runs for, you know, the entire length of this isthmus is covered by a mountain range. And that has made it uh, a sort of boundary, a natural boundary or border region between Russia and um, Southwest Asia, um, Iran, Middle East, etc. And, um, it is populated because it's a mountainous region by a huge multitude of very, very small ethnically and religiously distinct micro nations. Okay. So it has, uh, I think 40 or 50 different languages are spoken in the Caucasus. And, and many of these language groups are as small as a few thousand people. Um, it's very, very complicated. These, what's, what's the reason that Russia has had kind of an important strategic interest is, of course, that it is a, 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 a sort of way through, a sort of uh, a link with Asia. Um, but it's also, um, it's also an area that Russia has tried and sort of unsuccessfully or moderately successfully tried to subdue, really since the 1860s. So um, for for many, many, many years. Uh, the Russian Empire was involved in a project of co conquering the Caucasus and, and only very partially succeeded. Uh, just an example of that, if you look at contemporary Chechnya, where Russia has installed its own strongman, but this strongman, uh, Kadyrov, is, is quite independent in a lot of ways of Russia, um, sort of gives you the picture that, um, that it's been pretty difficult for Russia to impose its own rule over that area uh, and tends to have to do it through 
proxies or um, and there's you know kind of constant fighting between these proxies or different nations um, and and such and you add to that sort of radical Islam which is um, established beachheads in a number of these areas including Dagestan some of which are on the Russian side of the border and some of which are across the border in neighboring states such as Georgia or um, or Azerbaijan I suppose um, Armenia so um, so it's a very unusual region. It's one that Russia has tried for many, many years to subdue. In itself, these countries are not massively important. Um, you know, they are uh, they're sort of smaller nations that are stuck stuck up in the mountains there, and and they're only important insofar as they um, provide a linkage. They're they're like on important trading pathways and. Um, they provide and linkages with other states, essentially. Um, so they're of moderate or modest importance. Um, and yet Russia sort of feels a need to try to control that area, control that ter territory, in, partly, in part because of its historical um, connection with Georgia and Azerbaijan in the Soviet Union period, in which Russia had been very successful in extending the empire. Um, and doesn't want to let go of, of those sorts of things. Doesn't want to see competing empires. It doesn't want to see Turkey, for instance, or Iran having more influence in these countries than it does. Um, and also, I think the, the Caucasus is a right now, today, a pathway for uh, oil and gas out of Central Asia. So Russian strategy, in my view, in the Caucasus is primarily about uh, trying to control, um, prevent other uh, states from exporting hydrocarbons that would compete with it into the European market without Russia having a say or an ownership stake in that. And, that, and that's, I think, fundamentally why it's today kind of interested in the Caucasus. We've talked about the Caucasuses, which, like I said, probably not first and foremost on many folks' minds. So let's talk about Central Asia, which is even further off the radar for a lot of Westerners. And yet China and Russia both kind of have their eyeballs on this area. So why is that other than proximity? Is there you know, any potential for a conflict between Russia and China for influence over this area? Or are they generally cooperating? Um, I think generally, I mean, I wouldn't say cooperating so much, but they're, they're generally um, operating in a respectful way towards one another in these countries. I mean, Russia Russia understands that um, China has a geopolitical interest in the Central Asia region. It's a it's a neighboring region. It's one that it therefore shares as a neighboring region with Russia. Um, and uh, and China is in, is needy for the hydrocarbons, the gas, and the oil that um, are coming out of Central Asia. And that's really its primary export, its primary um, geopolitical uh, purpose at the present day is to, um, it, you know, it's a, a promising area for for uh, exploitation of natural resources. And of course, China has this huge demand for natural resources and Russia respects that. It also wants to supply natural resources. In a way, Russia is also a Central Asian state, remember, right? It has a big part of Central Asia is Russia. Um, so, um, so I think it's, uh, it, 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 however, Russia has taken the approach of trying to, um, I think Russia wants to play a sort of brokerage role in a way. Um, you see this also in its relations with Iran, um, that 
um, that Russia really understands that um, its biggest market for its goods is Europe. It sends 70-80% um, of its uh, products to Europe. Um, it's totally reliant on the European market. And, um, and it, it kind of wants to maintain a, um, a position as one of the principal suppliers with control over price of its goods into the European market, which is the natural for a commodity exporter. Um, most commodity exporters are not able to control prices or to control other people's uh, export operations. But Russia having the big military and uh, nuclear weapons and, um, you know, a lot of money and pull uh, is trying to sort of insert itself into these relationships um, by becoming the broker of Central Asian gas or at least the transit route for Central Asian gas into Europe. Uh, and that's why it is sort of opposes the um, uh, a Caucasus pathway that might bypass um, Russia and go directly from, say, Turkmenistan into um, into Europe, bypassing Russia. Um, Russia also has um, tried to, um, you know, uh, would like to construct um, uh, pathways for its oil and gas, you know, going via Central Asia into China. Um, and it's recently um, been sort of challenging the independence of certain Central Asian states, particularly Kazakhstan, and trying to are, trying to reestablish more of an imperial role, it seems, in, uh, in Central Asia. So if we continue to move east, um, we're going to look at China, which is obviously the biggie uh, other than... Europe. And the big question here is, you know, based on China and Russia's actually contentious relationship, um, you know, asking the question, whose communism is better? They actually had a small fight over a tiny island on a river um, during the 20s, you know, in the 20th century um, that almost blew up into a bigger war. Right now, what are Russia's current relations with China like? And what does Russia want to develop out of its relationship with China? Well, I think, um, I think Russia is trying to develop China as an alternative to its relationship with the West. And it doesn't mean necessarily, a lot of people will say, well, Russia is now allied with China. I mean, I, I don't really think that's true. I think it's more of a balancing um, that they're in between in a way, you know, two bigger powers. And um, they're pretty dissatisfied with the way the West is treating it and uh, their relationship with the West at the present moment. So they're leaning towards China um, and trying to see to what extent they can kind of leverage that relationship to hit back at the West, um, maybe to uh, dull the sort of effects of some of the Western sanctions against Russia and that kind of thing. So on the one hand, they cooperate with Russia, with China in the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, it seems that uh, Russia and China have uh, tried to put a united face, uh, anti-Western face in the, at the United Nations in many recent uh, votes, um, trying to contain Western, particularly U.S. geopolitical ambitions. So, um, so I think there's that piece of the relationship. And then the economic piece is, is really based on Russia's ability to exploit its natural resources and ship them to China, which... As I mentioned, Russia right now is very, very tied into the European market and would like to be more tied into the Chinese market. The problem is that there's an enormous cost 
somebody has to pay that cost. And unfortunately, China is not willing to to pay that cost, and Russia is not willing to really either. So, um, so the economic ties haven't really um, haven't really materialized the extent that they could. The other element here is that China has a huge population, and Russia is very anxious that Chinese are going to start somehow invading or moving into its very underpopulated um, uh, areas in Siberia, something that's more and more of a concern is um, global warming might make a lot more of those areas uh, habitable. We're talking about China, and it seems like based on what's going, you know, the trends right now is China's going to leave Russia behind economically if it hasn't already, and probably militarily too. Now, in the past, Russia was... It, well, certainly on the West, at least, the bigger power. Is is there any sort of power transition conflict risk that's going on now? Like, how, how is Russia looking at China as China continues to grow and become more powerful? You know, it's a really good question. I think, I think they're probably um, a little bit jealous of China, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, if you think about it, both these countries are countries that had to manage a post-communist transition. And if you ask which one handled it better, I mean, you have to decide that it was China. And Russia, Russia's leadership and its approach has been totally incompetent, essentially. Um, China has become, has, you know, become, made that modernization transition to a large extent. It's become an important site of the global economy, whereas Russia is absolutely nowhere. Uh, Russia remain, remains a kind of... Uh, commodity exporting, uh, superpower. So I just think that, um, that they are probably, first of all, really jealous of China and, uh, in, in some ways, even modeling themselves on China, trying to, uh, learn from the Chinese, like how, how they can at this point, uh, mobilize their authoritarian government to create some development. Um, and that becomes very, very difficult when, they're constantly fighting with the West. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that, that Russia's strategy is at this point is really a good one, but I imagine that, that they're probably, um, you know, a bit jealous and a bit threatened by China. So now that we've talked about, uh, China, the other big, you know, question mark in East Asia as it relates to Russia, well, and as it relates to China too, is Japan, which, has historically been, you know, a contentious relationship with Russia. They fought in 1904-05, which led to a lot of social rest, uh, unrest within Russia. And then again in 1939 at the Kalkin Gol incident. And now after World War II, there's this issue that's never really been resolved, which is the not often talked about Kuril Islands right now. So First off, are the Kuril Islands important? And does Russia have any sort of interest in trying to take sides between China and Japan right now, play them off each other? What do you think? Well, I think that, I think that uh, Japan has appo- approached Russia in a fairly pragmatic way because it wants to make a resolutions over the islands, right? And, um, and Russia um, doesn't appear to be playing... You know, it doesn't appear to be playing that game entirely, right? I think that um, it's acting sort of like a suitor, or a, a rather some a, a somebody being pursued, and it's being a bit standoffish. But I think it sees an opportunity to 
uh, kind of divide uh, Japan from the United States. The United States would like Japan to speak less to Russia and to sort of uh, abide by um, um, sanctions more and to sort of uh, marginalize Russia. Japan doesn't really feel that's a, a good approach for, for, to meeting its own objectives. Um, and, you know, I think um, likewise, I think that, you know, Russia's attempts to sort of um, be more friendly with China probably has meant that um, that Japan is a little anxious about that alliance, that particular alliance and, and concerned that it might be, uh, you know, not beneficial to it. So it uh, has an interest to be sort of warmer, you know, than we would be to, the United States would be to, um, to Russia. So we started off the conversation talking about a bit of Russia's history and how things change over time, the impact of certain uh, politicians in Russia and their ability to influence events today. And then we kind of went all around different areas surrounding Russia and their geopolitical interests. And I kind of want to circle back a little bit now and ask, you know, how does the current state of Russia's domestic political scene, which obviously influences what moves it can take internationally, how does that impact its foreign policy and how does it constrain its foreign policy? Um, well, as you see, like it's a very, when you talk about Russian foreign policy, it's a very long discussion just to talk about all the countries that border on Russia. Right? Um, and that's, you know, part of the problem is, is Russia feels in its foreign policy very vulnerable. It's vulnerable from, you know, from Iran, it's vulnerable from South Asia, it's, it's vulnerable from East Asia is vulnerable from Europe. So um, so I think that, that that's given Russia kind of sense that uh, it has a lot of foreign policy challenges. Uh, it's given them a sense that they're under siege constantly, that everything's a big concern and a worry, um, that um, they have to be very vigilant, a sort of, in a way, a paranoid type of outlook uh, has developed there. And um, and you can understand that. I mean, I, th I think it, it obviously makes sense. It's a lot easier to do foreign policy in a country where you're surrounded by oceans and, and, and friendly allies. Um, so um, so they, they have a, a very astute, um, they've developed a very astute perspective on the world. I think if you um, look, talk to Russian foreign policy experts or maybe even average citizens, they're much more aware of a lot of these issues than... Uh, and we are. I've thought, for instance, for a long time that Russia's intelligence about what's going on on the ground in Syria, for instance, is way better than the Americans uh, ha have had. Uh, they understand what's going on in different countries at a deeper level. Their training is more oriented towards that. Um, and then they have a huge chip on their shoulder that they um, had been a huge, great uh, superpower and they uh, tried to transform themselves into a modern Western democracy and fell on their face. Uh, they felt that people took advantage of them and that um, that they were treated uh, extremely poorly and are now have a chip on their shoulder trying to get back to being considered um, the strong power that they uh, should be or or, or, um, or wish to be. And uh, so I think it's a really kind of disturbed and disturbing kind of uh, perspective when you look inside the Russian foreign policy mindset. And I, I would add also where we talked about earlier is that when you look inside that mindset, you don't see a lot of the same things. You see a lot of contradictions too. I mean, so 
definitely there are people who, you know, if you go to Moscow, you can talk to people who think they should move the capital of the country to Vladivostok. And then you talk to people who think that, you know, Putin's crazy because of his anti-Western strategy. So I think it's a country that's historically, you know, uh, the big question there is, does the center hold, you know, and the center doesn't often hold that well. And so uh, people feel that they need a, a, a strong leader to kind of uh, make things hold together. And they're willing to put up with a whole lot of garbage, you know, just um, to make sure that this big empire doesn't just fly apart at the seams. So speaking of flying apart, um, one of the major, at least perceived constraints on Russia's ability to move forward in the next few decades is its reliance on energy exports. Given that the prices of energy like gas and oil are going down, in part due to the United States increasing uh, hydrofracking, um, how much do you think this is going to constrain Russia's moves? Do you think Russia can diversify its economy, or do you think it's headed to a crash course? I think it's uh, not doing a good job. I mean, we've already had a lot of time to look at, you know, since 1991, people have been asking this question, can they modernize? And I think the answer is really no, and certainly not under the Putin regime. That's That's the real dilemma, right? So the the strategic dilemma that Putin faces in a lot of ways is that he's he's sort of a good tactician. He's able to sort of, um, you know, put people on the back foot and sort of act obnoxious and flat a lot of rules and get a lot of attention for doing that and, uh, you know, win certain, you know, uh, small-scale battles. But, but he hasn't really been able to win the big uh, strategic goals, which are really turning Russia into a, a more highly developed economy because that's going to require rule of law. It's going to require institutions that, frankly, his more kleptocratic sort of um, robber baron type regime, you know, hasn't really achieved. And um, I just think it's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of sad. I, I think it's kind of sad for a lot of Russians who are of the more liberal mindset would, would sort of agree with this that, you know, you don't see much progress at all. I mean, the the signal towards modernization, I mean, the signal um, policy of Medvedev's um, uh, tenancy of the presidency was um, was a uh, attempt to develop a kind of Silicon Valley in Russia. And that was a total abject failure. Um, they did get a lot of American universities to promise to come and set up shop over there and transfer technology. But in the end, um, when this conflict broke out uh, shortly after Putin came back into power, that cashiered the whole idea. So um, you've seen, you know, plan after plan and effort after effort kind of um, fail. And, and Russia still, for instance, being completely independent on Western oil companies to be able to get the hydrocarbons out. It can't even, it can't even really invest in its own big industry without the West. And that's really, um, you know, it's really too bad, I think, for them. But but it's it's the choice that, that they're making, you know, with supporting the Putin regime. They know it's not helping um, the economy to develop, um, but, um, but they're willing to um, go anyway because they're kind of concerned. They, they believe that, that, that Putin has created a sort of geopolitical greatness and um, a resurgence, you know, sort of Russian power and 
and people associate that, I guess, with um, better outcomes um, for themselves and the country. So in terms of bringing this all together, because we've kind of gone to a lot of different places in the world and within Russia in this conversation. So given what we've talked about with Russia's top priorities and where it sits relative to its neighbors, you know, what are, what are we looking at now? Is Russia due for a resurgence or is it in decline? You know, what should we expect Russia to look like in the next five to 10 years? Well, you know, I think again with Russia, it's, it's always a little hard to tell. I guess if I were a stock picker, I would I would say it's a good time to buy Russia stock, right? <laughs> because they they go in these massive cycles, right, where they have these really bad periods and then they have these really great periods. Everything's happening, but you know, the 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 concern is though that you know right now under sanctions. Um, Russia's economy can't really grow very fast. It's not going to really be a brick economy um, for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's it's so reliant on hydrocarbon income that the sudden the the collapse down to much lower levels of the oil price has really hurt it over the long term. They're expecting some growth over the next uh, five years would be in the range of one to two percent. Um, you know, so I think a lot of that. That's why I believe that that Putin has been so desperate. Um, to intervene in the U.S. political process and to elect President Trump is they are really desperate to get rid of the sanctions regime at the end of the day. It's all about sanctions. And they understand how much sanctions is hurting them. And so I think their wish is that somehow they're going to overturn um, the Western support for sanctions enough so that it'll be lifted and they're going to bring back this heyday again where Western companies are pouring into Russia to invest Um and sort of forgetting about Ukraine and, you know, other geopolitical issues and uh, moving, you know, just accepting Russia as a great nation among other great nations and uh, embrace being embraced. I think it's looking a lot like a fantasy to me. Um, I, I don't really see that happening. I think that its uh, attempt to intervene in the U.S. presidential elections is backfired. I think that it's going to lead to serious problems for the Trump administration, if not um, impeachment for the president. I think that um, that the idea that by intervening in this way, uh, in this or other elections it's intervening in in, in Europe, that you're going to bring to power uh, pro-Russia leaders who are going to uh, welcome Russia with open arms is extremely naive. Um, so I guess that uh, that I'd have to say the medium-term outcome for uh, outlook for Russia is kind of very much in a state of uncertainty. Um, I don't, I, it should be, a, you know, if, if they are managing to, to achieve these goals, they could have uh, great results from that, but uh, it doesn't look like that. And I think, in fact, what you're going to see is that President Putin's coming under more serious domestic challenges, even though his popularity rating is through the roof right now. Uh, you're starting to see some signs of a little bit of instability of support uh, for his regime. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you think that our listeners would want to learn um, about this bigger question about where Russia might be going in the next 20 years? I think, I don't know, it's a good question. I mean, what do you know about Russia? I mean, I think one thing you have to know about Russia is it's a, it's a, you know, a lot of people insultingly, I think, you know, but in a way accurately call it a gas station with nuclear weapons, right? Huh. You know, that's unfortunate reality right now, you know, that it's a gas station with nuclear weapons. So 
it you know it's um it's much more dependent i think maybe the thing to know about it is it's much more dependent on the west than the west is dependent on russia so if you think about it russia right now needs a lot of stuff from us and we really don't need very much stuff from russia and that's that's a sort of dichotomy in the relationship or asymmetry in the relationship that's been very very difficult for the trump administration to handle um you know and I think has been difficult for a lot of people to handle, essentially. So it's essentially a very needy country, um, a country that's kind of reliant on, on you know, uh, the, you know, business of others. Uh, but all it really has to contribute is, you know, is thick and oily. And, um, and on the other hand, has these enormous amount of nuclear weapons to sort of muscle its way in, in different aspects of world affairs. So... For a country, you know, in a way, it's like Saudi Arabia, right? Except Saudi Arabia has, um, you know, um, I don't know, somehow integrated even, you know, is is also in this process, but from a somewhat better standpoint of being able to um, to kind of uh, try to modernize itself. And I think I think Russia is like Saudi Arabia, except with a lot more nuclear weapons and. Um, and it's going to be really challenging, I think, for the Putin regime to achieve its goals. I, I don't think it's going to really achieve its goals. And I think it's going to get succeeded at some point by another regime that's going to give it another type of try, another type of policy. But that policy, in my view, is most certainly going to um, have uh, uh, much greater um, sort of linkage with the West, much, much greater... Um, uh, much less hostility to the West, essentially. And, you know, it may not be exactly Western. It won't necessarily go back to the Gorbachev days or the Yeltsin days, but it will um, not be acting out all this uh, crazy hostility to the West, which it remains pretty dependent on. Professor Orenstein, this has been really interesting. Uh, I've learned a ton, and I'm really grateful, so thank you. Before we sign off... Um, if our listeners want to be able to read more of your work and learn more about what you're doing, where can they go to do that? Uh, I think that um, the best, I do have a webpage, uh, MitchellOrenstein.com. Um, that's one place. Another place is uh, I, I write a lot for Foreign Affairs magazine. So I would look at my author page on foreign affairs, uh, particularly for my work on foreign policy, which we've been discussing. We'll put all of these up in the show notes for you guys, so you can you can easily access Professor Orenstein's work and and dig in in greater depth if this if this is a subject that's interesting to you. Absolutely. So, Professor Orenstein, thank you again so much for joining us and taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Really happy to do it, and uh, thanks for all the great questions. It was interesting to kind of do a whole tour of, of the world of uh, Russian foreign policy. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.